Our next guest this morning is Greg Paramore AO, one of only a few industry figures to be inducted into the Australian Property Hall of Fame and who brings more than 45 years of experience across a roll call of the nation's largest real estate institutions. Greg is a non-executive director of Charter Hall Limited, chairman of Leftfield Investments, former CEO of Mervac Group, former chairman of LJ Hooker, former director of Leeton Properties and former managing director of Folkestone Limited. In addition to these roles, Greg is also a past national president of the Property Council of Australia, a former director of the Green Building Council of Australia and was the co-founder of both Growth Equities Mutual and Paladin. Outside of his corporate positions within the property sector, Greg is also a past chairman and director of the National Breast Cancer Foundation, a position he held for six years and is also a director of both the Sydney Swans and the Sydney Swans Foundation, a role he has held for some 13 years. Greg, I hope my introduction gives you justice. Given your extensive experience of what I've just outlined, what's your reading on the current strength of the Australian economy? Given uh, the events of the last 12 months, uh, and indeed we've forgotten another event that happened um, Christmas uh, 19 slash 20, is we had bushfires. So if you just took that as one item, uh, which we tend to have swept under the, under the carpet, uh, which is a bit sad for many people that are still struggling to, uh, to, to get their life back in order in those regional areas, and I think that's a real issue for Australia, by the way. Um, but we've had a hell of a, 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 you know, 18 months, if you will, or 15 months uh, ride, and I think Australia's been incredibly resilient. Um, I was just musing with a few friends the other day about March last year when, if you remember, the stock market took, went off south and I think Charter Hall, which is one of my favourite listed stocks, you know, went from about $12 to $5.30 or something in a day and you think, oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? And you look at it today, it's about $13.5 again or thereabouts. Um, and that goes for most stocks. And, um, you know, we've been very lucky, I think, to have had good governance pretty much at the federal uh, level for some time. You know, we've got uh, pretty, pretty tough fiscal managers with the current coalition and they've been, I think, doing a very worthy job of keeping things together, being mixed at the state level, but we'll get to that maybe not in this interview. But um, so I, I think we've done well. And, and, you know, you do stop and think, gee, we, you know, here we are sitting in the Pacific Ocean, between the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, um, and we've had a, a rails run. Uh, we, we didn't have a recession when everyone else did uh, in 08, 09, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we've been incredibly resilient, and that's been borne out by the type of economy we have and the type of people we are. So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that we've done better than most in terms of weathering this, this storm, which incidentally we're not out of yet, and we're probably somewhere in the, maybe the mid, I hope, towards the, post the mid, but we just don't know. Uh, and you don't, we just don't know what's going to be thrown at us. And, and um, vaccines are great, but it's not a cure. Um, so we're still going to be stuck with the aftermath or the aftershocks of this vaccine, of, of this virus for a long, long time. How would you evaluate both the federal and state government's leadership and response to the global pandemic? And what impact have their decisions had on the domestic economy, do you think? I think they've done a very, very credible job, if not an excellent job, um, which I think I probably should have prefaced by saying it probably is an excellent job. If you look around the world and what some of the other leaders and other governments did or didn't do, I think we've done a heck of a good job. They called it early. Uh, if you remember, we shut 
um, down flights from China very early in the piece and then we shut down a lot of international travel very early in the piece compared to most of the world. They responded very, very well, I think. Um, state governments, in my opinion, have been mixed. There's been a lot of politicking involved. They are politicians after all, but it's really sad for me to see that the Federation of Australia is now, you know, very stark, where we used to just assume that the, the borders were just lines on a map. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, they took another significant tact um, during uh, 2020. I don't think I'll call them out, but you know, there's been a couple that have done a shocking job, and there's been a few in between. And I think that is sad that I'm saying that, because when people won't own up and say, look, I've probably got that wrong, or I could learn from uh, XYZ state as to what we could do better and that's where politics sit in the road and you know nothing to see here I've done a great job quote unquote but I think you know where I'm probably talking who I'm talking about. In relation to the broader property market particularly in your role at Charter Hall and then also at Leftfield Investments what opportunities do you see now or in the near term horizon? Well, I always look at property as a servant to the community uh, because if people are expanding their businesses, if they're looking for office accommodation, if, if we've got positive uh, increase in population, we're looking for housing and it's various guises. So you always go back to demand and then obviously the supply side. Um, and most of that is in pretty decent shape at the moment. There is some question marks over some re residential, particularly apartments, the investor grade um, apartments, particularly in this city, in, in Sydney. I really can't talk for the other states as well as I can for here, but owner-occupier um, residential uh, is pretty much on fire around Australia. You just have to read the, the stats or read the, re read the reports and we know what that's all about. And that's fuelled by liquidity. I think people do have pretty decent liquidity and it's fuelled also by incredibly cheap interest rates, which makes affordability uh, less of an issue than it has been in the past when you're paying six, seven, or eight percent on your mortgage, and you're currently paying two-ish uh, percent, uh, and that makes it incredibly affordable. So I, I think uh, the markets are in, in not bad shape, but if you look at where the institutional money is chasing, it's certainly logistics and therefore industrial. Next is office, and it's A or premium grade, uh, city and or in some cases suburban. Uh, which is looking pretty good. Retail's been the, the outlier. Retail, if you remember, or we know, you know, is the best performing sector in the real estate market over the last 30 or 40 years, but we were seeing a change happening because of e-tailing and because of a changed nature of how, how retailing's conducted. And I think what we did is take about 10 years of change and put it into a year. And that has affected the top end in particular, the, the, the regionals and super regionals. And uh, the winner there has probably been the neighbourhood, or has been the neighbourhood and convenience retail, which is still pretty strong. And whilst the institutions don't play as much in that as the other end of the market, uh, that's been, we've seen that to be particularly resilient, a lot more resilient than I thought it would be. Um, and I suppose when you think that people aren't going out to dinner and they're, they're eating at home, then they're going to go to their local supermarket, they're going to go to their local shop. It's, it's convenient, as, as the word says, but it's also a lot safer than big regional malls, perhaps, where you're mingling with a lot more people. And that COVID um, impact has, has certainly come through. And you saw Cole's results uh, just this week, uh, which sort of 
uh, endorses uh, my comments. So they're all looking good. We've had very low interest rates and therefore the margin on bonds for real estate yields has never been higher. And that is driving a lot of demand globally. And if we look at ourselves in a global context, we've got um, you know, a very good legal system where you know, our sovereign risk is basically zero. And as a consequence of that, uh, a lot of the major uh, institutions around the world, the, the sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, and the big pension funds uh, see Australia as a, as, a, as a good place to invest. You know, we've got low vacancies in comparison to a lot of places in the world. We've got a, an economy that's, that's moving forward. Um, we've been very lucky with our mining, of course, that doesn't occupy a lot of space, but it does pay a lot of wages. Uh, and therefore people have been well rewarded by working in that, that sector and that's underpinned what we're doing. And we've also had, a, uh, we're lucky enough to have some pretty good harvests and, you know, standout performance of sheep and cattle, et cetera, et cetera. Um, notwithstanding a certain uh, trading partner that's not taking certain things, that, that, that whole sector's pivoted away from that and we're finding markets in other parts of the world. And, if you like, we've probably been lazy in, uh, in just accepting that's the easiest market to be in. And now we've got to go hunting a bit. And Australians are pretty good at hunting. What structural challenges do you see for the property market over the medium to long term? And how should companies be positioning themselves to weather some of these challenges? I think um, there's one front and centre at the moment, obviously, is with the COVID uh, issue, is will people come back to the cities? Um, will, we, will they support a city environment which is not just office space but it's everything that services the office uh, office space users their cafes their restaurants their bars there's you know doctors and dentists and everything else that go in between plus retail and that vibrancy that we've been used to in our city in our cbds and major regional centres uh, is, is under challenge a bit at the moment. My feeling is that we will get back to normality. It will take a couple of years. Some industries and some types of workers uh, and some organisations have realised that they don't need the office space that they used to have. I'm talking particularly about, you know, call centres, for instance, where you can monitor a worker in terms of output etc very easily um, electronically these days so you don't have to be in one spot and companies have been doing it elsewhere in the world for decades really uh, southwest airlines out of the us of i think it's been 20 years where their whole workforce or everybody doing uh, bookings uh, they've had a, a predominantly female workforce spread around america they set that up decades ago and you know never had to put a call centre in. So I think some of those industries will change, but I think it's very hard for people to learn and therefore companies to grow and nurture their young up and coming people um, on a Zoom call. Uh, it's very one dimensional. And uh, it works for a while. It worked incredibly well last year. A few old blokes like me had to learn how, uh, about electronics very quickly and very frustratingly. Uh, but we got through and, uh, and it was fantastic. I mean, you know, the, 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 the spirit about still conducting commerce uh, last year was, was phenomenal, I thought. But I think people will need to come back to the cities. But that is a challenge. And, and will people, a lot of large organisations are talking about whether people can, you know, be two, two days here and three days at home or vice versa, et cetera, et cetera. I think part of that is here forever and that's going to change the dynamic of office usage. At the same time, I think social distancing is probably here forever too. And I think people will be very wary to go back into the battery hen type of space that we used to have, and there will be more space per human. So that might be a compensating factor. That's going to challenge it. The, the 
flip side of that is we still have relatively high take-up of space. Um, our vacancy factors in Melbourne, Sydney are sub 10%, and I always call a market in equilibrium as 10% is fine. You don't want to be much higher than that. Brisbane, Perth are heading towards 20%. I'd call that a, a higher risk. And then some of those other challenges are, are electronic challenges, if you like, or internet challenges where how much space do we need or can we uh, move to more e-retailing and, and other forms of um, remote work and those sorts of things. I think that's a, a big risk. Um, or a, a serious thing that's got to be addressed. I have some views, I've already expressed them, that I think people will go back to wanting human uh, interaction. I just don't think even the whatever the generation is coming through, that first thing they do, and which I find myself doing in the morning, is you turn on and you don't need to communicate with anyone. But you really... It's very hard to conduct your life like that, so I'm optimistic about that. We've got some challenges uh, geopolitically with, obviously, with China and, and their issue with us, and I guess ours with them. I'm not qualified to say how that's going to play out, but obviously we've got to pay attention to that, and I'm sure our government is paying attention to it. And we have some other geopolitical issues, you know, around the world that are outside our control. So that's, a, that, that's always a constant. You know, we can do certain things internally, but at the end of the day, if the world moves in a different direction or for whatever reason there's, there's an incident, then that's going to obviously impact. But taking that off the table, the headwinds um, are just one really of, of getting um, Australia back to work. And I think, um, and I know the Morrison government is working hard on this, is saying, let's get back, let, let's, for heaven's sake, stop just digging the stuff out of the, uh, out, out of the ground and putting it on a ship. And I've been saying this for a long, long time. I've seen it, and, and as a Western Australian or former Western Australian, you know, I grew up in, with that, that um, start of the iron ore boom back in the 60s and the whole mining thing that, that grew up at that time. And it's always been frustrating that we haven't been able to value add on the way through. Um, and I know I hear now people talking about that and I'm very keen for that to happen. And the other very uh, opportunistic thing for Australia is there's a lot of wealth, there's a lot of companies, there's a lot of people that are looking around the world and they're living in the US or they're living in parts of Asia or they're living in parts of Europe. And they're saying, is this where I want my children to grow up? Is this where I want to be? And we're starting to hear about it now where people are starting to want to come to Australia. Immigrants with big ideas, lots of wealth and lots of ideas that can help this country get to where it needs to do, which is to be a very high-end manufacturer or manufacturer of high-end, highly sophisticated uh, and challenging uh, things. <laughs> Can't think of the right term, but particularly in medicine and, and you know other other areas that we can um, we can really excel at because we do have one of the best education systems in the world. We have a, a country that's you know a very safe place to live. It's right in the right spot really in, in between um, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean uh, and with Asia to the north and to the west of us. We've got South America and the USA and Canada to, to, the, to the northeast of us of course. So I think we're in fantastic shape. So yeah, there's issues but I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about our future. You touched on it there. Let's discuss Greg Paramore, the, the person. You were born in Western Australia's Margaret River. Take us through your upbringing and, and your earliest memories. I was born in Margaret River and um, I didn't grow up in Margaret River. Father and his brother actually went farming after World War II. They were 
return service people and chose after a period of time to, to leave that. So I grew up in the southwest of Western Australia, in Perth for a period and in country areas near Perth. Um, my, my father was stock and station agent, so he tended to be transferred from one place to another. Uh, so it was a normal upbringing. I, I was, my brother's 10 years Older, older than me, so I was a bit of an only child, which made me quite selfish. If you talk to my wife today, you know that's a, that's the way it is. But no, I had a I had a pretty normal upbringing, uh, nothing out of the ordinary. And you know, when I look back on it, it was interesting. But I probably should have achieved more out of my my early life than I did. A bit of a bookworm, and I probably you know should have what you don't know you you can't work on but you know it was it was pretty happy. You did have a unconventional pathway into the property industry though in that you left school at age 17 to join the workforce. Mm. Take us through this period of your life and why were you so eager to leave school and, and start working? I didn't know what I wanted to do at university so uh, and I was sitting at home and my father said uh, I think you need to go and buy some shirts and well, I think he might have organised that. And he'd organised for me to start, and this was in a little country town called Beverley in Western Australia, and, and uh, there was a, the local bank, or one of them was the ANZ. So I found myself fronting up to the ANZ bank one morning with a, a fellow that was the branch owner, Mr Teed, who turned out, a friend of my father's too, but turned out to be a fantastic teacher and a wonderful man. So I had a 12, 15 months there, and then um, I moved on and I wanted to get away from the country. I would get to the... The, the bright lights of the city, all 800,000 people in Perth or whatever it was back then. And I joined a finance company, Lombard, and I, I, I was with them in Perth and then moved to Melbourne for a stint there. So that, that was my training. I, I did a number of diplomas and things along the way, but I never went, I, uh, unfortunately, probably never went back to university, which I probably should have. But anyway, that's life. Following roles in finance and the rental car industry, you purchased your first business, a news agency at age 21. Done your homework, yeah. <laughs> how did this opportunity come about and how did you find the experience of running your own business? Oh, yeah, well, that was a family thing. My, I, I was living on the East Coast and I think my particularly my mother decided I should be home. So they bribed me with some money uh, for my brother and I to go into business together, which was which worked okay for a while. Um, I, I didn't last long, two people 10 years apart with di totally different perspectives on life, one being 21, which was me, and my brother being 31 with a couple of kids. Um, but that all worked out and we're still good friends. So I moved from that and um, I was <laughs> sitting on a boat I had and. I thought I'd better go and get a job and, um, and I applied for a job in, in leasing which I actually thought was um, finance leasing which I knew a bit about and uh, so I applied and found it was a commercial real estate agency called Milner and Company which became Knight Frank down the track and um, fortunately got the job and, um, and that was it. I just, I just fell into an area that I just really loved. I loved servicing my clients and I was in leasing, um, mainly more than anything else. And we did all the modern office buildings of 1973, I think, and there were three new massive 33 level towers in Perth going up, so that was interesting. And the first uh, regional shopping centres, uh, we did Carinup Shopping Centre, uh, there was Carousel on the south side and, and lots of industrial. So I, I sort of got into commercial real estate, went to night school, just decided this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I loved it. Um, so I did some training, as you need to do, but I also you know, trained on the tools as it were and, and really got um, involved in, in the cut and thrust of... Uh, and it was great getting into leasing because you, you get to understand what people's businesses because you actually 
leasing them either retail and getting to understand what their business dynamic is, getting into offices as to why they're there, why they're expanding, why they're contracting, what they do. And industrial was the same, albeit that was, you know, there were smaller sheds back then. So that was fantastic and that was, you know, that's how I stumbled into, into this area and then from there, after seven or eight years, uh, one of the directors had left the firm and was developing and his name was Dick Lester and he invited me to join him and I did that and we did a range of developments from Carrathra and the Pilbara which was all about iron, iron ore and, and gas and salt and stuff to small um, retail and some commercial and some, some residential and from there we developed um, uh, which was Dick's idea, but Growth Equities Mutual, which was one of the f new breed of unlisted property trusts, which we launched in 1981. In 1981, as you said, you founded company Growth Equities Mutual with Dick Lester. What's, what was your mandate? Well, um, in that, those days, we were developing and we said, gee, if you looked at uh, those that have been successful, uh, it was really Lend-Lease and GPT, because Lend-Lease developed it and, G and put it on GPT's balance sheet. So. Um, that seemed to be a pretty good model and whilst we were developing little things, we thought well, if we have a fund that will allow us to you know, control our destiny rather than put something on the market. Now bear in mind back in 81, 82, 83, interest rates were well in the teens um, and when we launched GEM in um, uh, March 1982 I think it was, interest rates were 21.5%, that was the bill rate. Um, so you try making money out of real estate when you're, when you're rolling bills, 90 day bills at 21.5% and it was pretty interesting. Um, somehow we got through that, a lot of people did and a lot of people didn't. Should we go listed, should we go unlisted? The institutional market just was nothing like it is today, it was dominated by, by uh, AMP, National Mutual, City Mutual, all, all the mutual life companies, they were just getting into investment property in the late 60s, early 70s, um, and they were just discovering uh, the cash flows that you get from, from these types of investments. We decided to go into the retail investor market and go unlisted. So the Growth Equities Mutual Property Trust, which we grew over the 80s, um, first year we raised 4.4 million. By year two when I arrived over here, we had 20.3 million under management. Um, so that, that is, you know, <laughs> they weren't big numbers. We didn't eat a lot of caviar. We certainly didn't drink any bottled wine. And, uh, you know, it was food parcels from parents in the country and, and Dick would kill a few of his cows that he had roaming around. And, that, and I'm not joking, that was the way it, way it was. So that was it. So um, in 84, I moved over here. We just said, if we're going to make this work, well, one of us have to come east. And fortunately, he had kids at high school and we had our, our, our firstborn. So Kerry and I came over uh, in 84 uh, for a couple of years just to so see how it was. And that was 36 years ago, whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, so it worked and uh, we grew GEM from zero to about one and a half billion of equity and no debt uh, by the time 1990 came around which was the crash of 1990 which was pretty pretty horrendous um, but we sort of managed to get through that and um, I then moved on to do other things. As you said there, just over 10 years later in 1992 you sold your stake in the fund by which time it had become Australia's largest unlisted property trust worth around 1.5 billion. How did you manage that level of growth year on year? A lot of, lot of hard, a lot of sleepless nights. It was, you look back, you look back on these things and think, yeah, how did we do that? But 
I don't know, we grew, we had, it was Dick and myself and one and a half people at the beginning. I think we had 200 staff at the end and we had an office in Brisbane and one in Melbourne, one here and one in Perth. And we're pretty lucky, we, we hardly turned over any staff. Um, you know, um, we, we had terrific people, we were able to recruit really good people. I think one of the key things about that our business was we put our investors first, which when the crash came in 1990-91, uh, we had a very honest communication with our investors about what was, we had 80,000 of them, uh, what was right and what was wrong and what was happening as best we could answer those, where a lot of our competitors didn't, didn't speak truthfully to their, their investors. It's still perhaps the, the case today, uh, in some cases. It was a great marriage between Dick and myself and, and Energy. He, he stayed in Perth, although we both travelled a, a lot. We just built it brick by brick. And I think when you are at, at the first, first time when you're doing the, uh, the first distributions, checks were done on, on my uh, lounge room floor. We'll, Kerry and I were putting them in envelopes and posting many of them, posting them out, uh, you, you can sort of do that. So it was, it was really exciting. It was fantastic, yeah. Next came the launch of Paladin in 1994. One of your acquisitions during this time was Melbourne Southgate Towers. Walk us through this particular acquisition and, and also Paladin as a business. Was it different to growth equities? Yeah, what I, I, had, uh, I had a very fortunate um, time then because when I sold out of GEM and before I started Paladin, I had a time where I just, you know, you, you work hard for a long period of time, 11, 12 years with, with GEM and you're pretty exhausted. And I, you know, I had three kids by that stage. I had a, a, a Kerry head, all the nurturing. Um, it's a lot different these days, but she did a great job. And, and I, I was lucky enough to not have to, you know, go and get another job. So I just did sit down and write down everything that was on my mind at that time. Everything that had gone through your mind in, in that whole build up. I wonder if this, you know, should I be doing this? Did I really want to do this job? All those things. And I was, how old was I? 41 or something, 42. So I had the luxury of time and I just took that time. Fortunately, I wrote all that down and when I got, and I scrubbed on my whiteboard and I scrubbed everything off, I, got, I ended up with two things left there, funds management and property which I'd already been doing. I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do next time. Um, and I then took a year off. And uh, during that time, um, you know, it was fantastic because I, I, I got to know my children, I got to know my, my wife a lot better. And I had the luxury of just, you know, sort of thinking it through. I didn't, I, when you first find yourself by yourself, there's a tendency to rush in and do the next thing, particularly in the, you're that age or my temperament. And I was lucky enough not to do that. So I looked and, and we thought, uh, and Rod Lever, who'd been, worked with me before, joined me, and he co-founded Paladin with me. And we um, we looked at the marketplace, and I felt that the unlisted markets were very tarnished from what happened in 91, 92, 93. And there was a lot of lot of um, issues around the whole unlisted structure, which is a, a another topic for another day. But we had some issues with the regulators back then, the way this, they were structured, etc. But Gem, fortunately, we got that through that pretty well for our investors. Not without pain, but uh, with a lot less pain than lots of others. So the market was moving to listed. So that's what I was attempting to do. And we, we attempted to list an industrial fund and interest rates got in the way of that. We had, um, we were looking at the um, accommodation industry with hotels. We, we ended up pulling out of that. And I actually got a call from Westfield who uh, said, why don't you pop over and have a chat, which I did because I knew them reasonably well. 
and they were wanting to buy a, a particular asset in um, Victoria and part of that deal was doing Southgate and they knew that I was setting my business up. They didn't want to do that because their retail not, um, they had a little bit of retail but not a lot. And I was able to convince the vendors of that that we were worthy of support and we set about uh, on a conditional contract to have a capital raising and, and had the listed Paladin Commercial Trust which launched with Southgate. We created the Paladin Industrial Trust as well because the market had moved that way. At the same time, we also recognised the syndicate market was starting, so we had a number of syndicates we launched during that time. We had a very large uh, REIT securities fund. Um, GEM had been the first group to start a property securities fund to bridge the unlisted and the listed markets together with a universe of 15 stocks. And then I, I um, created a Paladin uh, property securities fund now called REIT Funds and we raised about a billion dollars, I think, for that. Uh, some institutional, some, some private. So we moved from just the pure re uh, retail investor market to the institutional market was backing listed, um, and we grew Paladin over six or seven years to about two and a half billion or whatever it was. And by this stage and for a second time in your career, you grew Paladin, as you said, into a multi-billion dollar business before selling to Deutsch Asset Management, which later became Dexas. What was involved, do you think, during the growth stages of that business? How have you, there's two times in a row now that you've managed to, to grow businesses into multi-billion dollar enterprises. How have you gone about that, and particularly in the Paladin case? I didn't write the script on either of them. Uh, we tended to write the script after we'd done it. Um, but it, it's, it's backing, I think, your judgment that what you're doing, it, reading your market and knowing what the market wants is one of the fundamental things that you need to do in funds management, no matter what you're doing, particularly real estate. There's no point in giving people something they don't want. And in 1994-5, when I was trying to get Paladin off the ground, they wanted listed or liquid securities. So that was point one. Point two, once again, you always got to get good people. Um, if you don't have good people, and people with the right attitude and the right approach to their investors as well as the job in hand, Rod was a terrific co-founder. He was he did he did what I couldn't do, and probably vice versa. So it was a great partnership for that period of time. Uh, and once again, we built a team of people around us that you know were pretty good. We didn't have too many failures. I think also, I've always been a great believer in having fun uh, when when you're doing this. Um, and I don't mean what's having fun. Well, I just love what I do anyway. So that that makes life easier. Uh, and you're going to and gather people around you that I think you automatically um, get to people that want to share that, that vision, that opportunity. And um, I was able to get good people. You get good people and you have a crack at it, you, you've probably got a decent chance of, of, of getting there, provided that you, you make sure you understand the market you're in, you make sure you know the investor market, you make sure you know the property market and you're prepared to pull out of things as well. Less than a year later, you then launched James Fielding Group, your yeah. third business. How did this business differ from Paladin and, and Growth Equities? First of all, it's a stapled security, uh, which a lot of the, most of the big funds are now, uh, big groups are. So we stapled a trust. So I had a little, what, didn't, what Deutsche didn't buy was a little trust that I had a joint venture with, with a couple of friends of mine in Perth called the PA Property Trust, and they were keen to sell. So I bought them out of that $60 million fund. 
and we used that as the launching pad for um, James Fielding. Uh, and that was to have a stapled security where you had the trust and the company stapled together, an op opco propco arrangement, that's all the norm. The only ones that were there ahead of me was Stockland, uh, who'd, who'd done that for tax reasons years, years and years before, and Mervac followed because they couldn't get traction in their pricing of either their trusts or their company by bolting it together did. And I thought that was a, an interesting way to go and something I believed in. So we, we did that. And uh, my aim then was to have a capital light model. Um, so we didn't want to swamp it with capital raisings. We created funds uh, off the back of that. So we built that quite rapidly, I guess, over a few years from whenever it was, 2001, to 2003, yeah. Um, so, we, yeah, it was a $400 million market cap with about a $2 billion development pipeline and about a, just on a $2 billion funds pipeline for various things at that time as well. Nearing its three-year anniversary, as you said, James Fielding Group with you at the helm was purchased by Mervac in a $478 million deal. What are the fundamentals required to position a company as an attractive takeover target? Mm. And what are the ingredients to effective decision making? I've never, I've never started a business with the idea of selling it. Um, but I've learnt that if somebody has a greater need than you, then, you know, perhaps that's not a bad way to go. Now, there's people who have very different views that, you know, want to keep one thing and just grow it and keep it there forever. I've never been an active seller or never created James Fielding or Paladin or Jam, or Jam I sold out of, but then sold it to Lend Lease a little later. But I've never created anything that I've said, oh, I'm going to sell this in three years' time or five years' time. I wish I still had Jam, you know. And that's what I, I probably wish. The circumstances lead you to do different things. Uh, Paladin, it was market. What caused us to look at that was institutions were making it harder for inde independents like us to have a management company that owned the management rights of a trust that was listed. So they could go and buy 20% on market and then kick you out as manager. So that's very damaging in terms of your hip pocket. So when Deutsche came knocking, I thought uh, that was a good opportunity to, um, to see what they had. We, we did a deal directly. We didn't go and shop it. Um, some people would do it differently. They'd try and get maybe another penny or two out of it. But I was very happy to take the price that we negotiated. Um, it was good for the shareholders and therefore me, and I felt also very good for the unit holders because first and foremost, if you put your investors first, your staff second and you third, you probably win. If you put yourself first and everybody else somewhere else, you know, you might get win, but it's a shallow win if you like, because if you've got to look after your investors first. And I learned that way back when, uh, during the crash of 1990, we really had focused on our investors. We'd built up a lot of cash reserves, we had no debt, you know, we're in really good shape despite the fact that the market toppled over that, you know, maybe you could see coming, but most didn't. So back to the to where we were with um, James Fielding, that was Mervac, uh, yeah, Mervac knocking on the door. The people that had been there, particularly Bob Hamilton, um, asked if I'd be interested in buying James Fielding and me and my team basically taking over the management of uh, Mervac because they wanted to retire, plain and simple. It wasn't on the agenda. Um, as a matter of fact, I'd had a, a time away with my board a few months before um, Bob made the approach and I was talking about handing over to my 2IC and starting to step back and taking it easy a bit. I was very young then, 
I was ridiculously too young. But, um, but uh, and then Mervac came knocking and I thought, why not? I think this will be great for my shareholders. They're going in from a sort of $400 million business to a $3 billion business. I did like Mervac, I'd respected Mervac. So that, they, that was great for the investors, uh, for my staff. Um, they all got really good jobs out of it and ended up doing you know, great things either there or moving on to do other things after a period of time. I got to run a, a large company, which I never set out to do in my life, but it was interesting and challenging and, um, and I learned a lot and hopefully, hopefully did some good uh, along the way. You became the CEO of Mervac in 2003 and led the business for five years until 2008. What's it like being the CEO of an organisation of a company of that scale and how would you evaluate the strength of the business today? Well, I think it's very different to go in uh, when it's been sort of run by one group of people for 20 plus years. So because I, and I, whether they wanted me to make changes or not is, is a moot point, but I felt it needed changes and I had a direction that I wanted to take it um, and it was pretty hard to get all that to happen because people get very set in their ways and they say oh, no we've always done it this way and this is the way we want to continue to do it. It's just a mental thing, it, it's the way it is. So I found it quite frustrating in some ways. I made uh, changes as I could but you're steering a pretty big ship that takes a long time to turn around. But we managed to you know do some innovative things and I'm very much focused on the funds, funds management side of real estate so I was, I was pivoting uh, Mervac to to that to that way of thinking and that's continued which is great and uh, there were some other initiatives there so there was a lot to lot, lot to do uh, leading up to 2008 um, when we had the GFC I'll be judged by others because I I, uh, I I enjoyed it it was challenging I hope I did some decent things there and uh, you know the Sarah price during my journey was reflected that the business was going well. I had given notice uh, to my chairman two years before, a year and a half before I left that I wanted to wind back in a couple of years because it was time yeah, to, to move on. I retired just just before. The GFC was well and truly underway but it really bit after I'd left so I left it with Nick Collishaw who took over from me who was with me at, um, at James Fielding and, uh, and before and um, I need a very very credible job of taking it to the next stage and also turning its course more to office which has been very beneficial to the company. So how's it going now? It's going really well. I think Mervac's a, a great organisation. It's well led, uh, well governed um, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a household name pretty much and yeah, doing a, a good credible job. What's your reading on the asset class mix of large listed property groups today? Do you think they're underweight or overweight on any particular sector? Well, there's sector specialists, so you know you've got a lot of overweighting if you if you're only in office, or you're only in retail. If you, if you take Charter Hall, you know it's been deweighting its its exposure to retail, um, but upweighting its ex exposure to industrial, logistics and office over the last few years. Because David Harrison, who is is second to none in terms of you know the ability to manage that ship, um, he's been moving that that way uh, and that also reflects in part what I was saying earlier about what people want. Uh, you've got to respect what your investors want and uh, Charter Hall with nearly 50 billion of funds under management um, is really responds to the needs of its community of investors both wholesale and retail and obviously takes its own view um, which is debated widely and, and as a board member we, we get to discuss it and um, you know, interrogate whether it's the right course of action. 
but um, it, it will move where it needs to be. So the sector specialists, or those that have chosen particular paths, and there's a number of them that are office and regional um, malls, and, you know, they've had a bit of a tough trot. The pure office uh, funds similarly have been beaten up a little bit over the last 12 months, probably offer some pretty good value. The pure um, industrial ones have been well bid because Everyone wants to be an industrial at the moment. The beauty about that is investors coming in into the listed market can pick and choose what they want and you can get whatever you want out of a, a range of stocks that are listed on the market. So you can make up your own portfolio or you can buy into a diversified fund like, um, I'm selling my book here, but Char Charter Hall Long Wild REIT, which is focused, um, it's got a lot of industrial office, uh, some retail, particularly convenience-based retail and other specialised um, long, long whale, long uh, leases, um, government-backed, etc., etc. And your involvement in Charter Hall came through via Folkestone Limited, which was another company you yeah. founded in 2010 and sold to Charter Hall Group eight years later in a $205 million deal, making you a, a non-executive director of Charter Hall today. What does your position at the company involve? And you have sort of touched on it, but how would you evaluate the strength of the, the company's balance sheet today? Uh, well, they, they reported yesterday and it was a terrific half. Our share price went down, which I can't often read the markets because why would it go down when they've just had a great year, but some said it should have been greater. So during the whole COVID thing, the way that Charter Hall was, was able to still grow through this last period of time says a lot for the organisation. It says a lot for the confidence that investors have in that organisation. So um, it's, uh, it's incredibly well-led, uh, well-governed, and has positioned itself to those markets that, you know, outperforming many others. So, um, so the sale of Folkestone, um, that was, Folkestone, when I took that, it was actually a listed company with about a market cap, I think, of about $8 million. We took hold of that, we uh, went and bought a business, and I'd been in childcare centres a decade before, built a small portfolio of about 50 of them, and were able to negotiate with a, with a group that had the management rights for um, a, the largest childcare centre uh, group. And um, uh, we bought that, and then we grew that from, I think it was $400 million worth of childcare centres to about 1.1 or 1.2 billion, when Charter Hall knocked on the door and said, would you be interested in a deal? Um, so going back to the way I, I think, I thought, well, it's, is it good for my shareholders? Uh, they're going to get cash, they're going to get... The biggest problem with the microcap as we were at $200-odd million is you get to a stage where the market loses interest in you if you're too small and not growing at a particular rate. And if you're doing that, you might be doing things that may affect you later on. So we were being very conservative about the way we were building that. And the growth that we'd seen in the share price had started to... To, to level off and therefore the IRR that I was chasing for me and my shareholders uh, was such that you know it was starting to fall behind. So um, I looked at it, I thought it was uh, timely to consider that. Um, I, uh, Dave Harrison and I sat down, I had an idea of price, he had an idea of price, uh, there was a few pennies between it so uh, we shook hands and did the deal. And the shareholder, my shareholders did really well because they were just shy there. What I wanted to do was a 15% IRR on from go to woe. Uh, all my staff got employed at Charter Hall bar one or two that wanted to leave. I think there was one redundancy um, and they're all gainfully employed and doing their, their thing 
at CHC, uh, which, is, which is great. They asked if I would join their board, which I was uh, very happy to do. Um, it wasn't part of the deal, but I've enjoyed that encounter over the last couple of years because, um, as I said, they're a very well-run, driven organisation that do great things. Now, as I mentioned in the opening, you're the chairman at Left Field Group, where we are today, a multidisciplinary investment manager with interests across the real estate, private equity and venture capital sectors. Where do you see the greatest opportunity for investment currently? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say where I see the greatest, the greatest opportunity for me and my family is, is the things that appeal to us to do. So Left Field is basically our, our, our family op family business. So we're invested in um, in property debt at the present time. We have a small company called uh, Tier One Capital uh, with some friends of mine in Melbourne that we started up in um, December two, 2019. <laughs> so, so it was an interesting journey trying to all of a sudden use Zoom to haven't been in Melbourne since March last year. So we lend money to property people that the banks don't lend money to, money develop, development, developers, small end. Uh, we have a, a following that um, we put it out to our investor network each deal. We underwrite it so we've done the deal but if you'd like to come in these, these are the metrics and we'd fill those up with our people that are recycling so they're all short term 12 months, 18 month deals. But we are also in a venture with Achieve Australia which is a SIL provider or um, disability accommodation group. They were looking to get out of their property holdings which we've uh, taken out of achieve into a company called Inclusive Housing Australia which, which we own alongside the Achieve people and we're attempting to build a portfolio of, of, of residential property for people with disabilities. That's under the NDIS, NDIA regime, National Disability Insurance Scheme etc. And we see great opportunities, incredibly complicated, incredibly hard but the beauty of when you get to my stage of life I can do things I want to do and not being arrogant, I, there's a little bit of good in doing If we can do this properly and create a better environment for those people unfortunate enough to have a disability that causes them to be in this position, then that's a good thing to do. So they're the main things. I'm also involved with Eureka Group, which um, you didn't mention earlier, they're also listed and we've got a holding in that organisation and they provide accommodation for um, mainly people on a pension. So we've got uh, 40 villages up and down the East Coast and in South Australia with about two and a half thousand apartments um, that we're growing and, and developing there. So that's, that's, that's my focus. We've obviously got investments in listed organisations like Charter Hall and others which are part of what we do and, and, um, and the private equity piece we, we use experts to do that because I'm not expert and neither is my family or my employees. Yeah, so we're just going where we, where we want to go at the moment. Just on disability um, accommodation or disability housing, as I understand it, it, it's quite a complex sector. It's not sort of a, a you know, get quick, yeah. rich, you know, sort of scheme or anything like that. Tell us about some of the intricacies involved in the sector or, or how difficult is it? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still learning. Thank goodness I've got some good people that know a lot more about it than I do. But it's, it is very complex. Uh, it is attracting a few cowboys. Um, and there's a lot of talk about, oh, you get into this and you can, you know, make it an awful lot of money. Uh, that is not just for people that are thinking of investing. Be very careful who you invest with uh, and, and, you know, go into it in some detail. So it's complicated. You have to get funding via the uh, federal government agency that was brought in in the Gillard government, I think, and it's, it's, been, rolled, it's been sorted out by the, uh, the current coalition. 
it's a well-run scheme. I know none of the people in both on the board and the executives, uh, and they're very competent people, but it's a very complicated place to get funding, um, and it comes at a number of levels. And it's also very complex because of the people that are involved, the customers, the people that are going to occupy the, the bed or the room, or you know, and they'll either be in a house that might have three participants, they might be in an apartment by themselves, uh, and it's obviously different levels of requirements uh, from whether they're mentally affected physically or both, or if they're people that, you know, um, are apt to be violent and they need particular properties, etc. Uh, the whole initiative is around keeping people in a non-institutional environment so that they, you know, salt and peppered throughout the community, which is a good thing. It does come with some complications there um, that I think they're better off to be clustered in, in, in some ways because it's very expensive to keep them uh, like that. So it, it's, it's just got a, a lot of layers on it in terms of if you develop something that's capable of being utilised, um, you've got to get an approval for that, an SDA approval, it's got to get a tick, which is quite a thorough process in terms of making sure it's, it's ready for occupancy. Uh, you've got to get a participant and, and if it's a shared environment, particularly if it's more, and, and the government agency would like people in two or three bedroom accommodation, 75% of, of our people that we, we survey, the people that we look after and, and others, want to be, 75% of them want to be by themselves. They want a one bedroom apartment. And they have carers, they have um, social workers, they have families that all participate in that decision. If they're of able mind, that's one thing. Yeah, they can they can tell you what they want and why. If they're not uh, of able mind, um, and unfortunately a lot of people in this area aren't, then they're relying on a lot of people to give them the right advice. And they're relying on their judgment. So it, it's very complicated. I think we'll get there, but it's a, it's a long and, and difficult course, but at the end of the day, and it'll take five or ten years to, to work its way through to get the, the model absolutely right, I think, and, um, and there'll be some missteps along the way, um, but it's a, it's a worthy cause. There'll be a lot of developers watching this, so I want to get your insights from a tier one capital perspective. What asset classes or what types of development are you funding or not funding at the moment? We're quite flexible. Um, and we tend to be sort of Melbourne, Sydney, just because of the nature and COVID sort of stopped us moving around much. And we've tended to be, you know, suburban uh, Melbourne and suburban Sydney, and we're looking as far up as the border, I guess. Um, and and we're, we're doing, uh, our book would be about 60% residential, about 40% mixed-use industrial, mixed-use and, and industrial. Uh, and we see each, each deal on its merit. So we haven't got a specific, we've got, you know, because each deal's its own deal, it's, it, it's, it's not a, a pooled arrangement. We're not trying to have weightings this way or that way. We take a deal, some of our investors will say, I've got already got too much in Melbourne, or I've got enough in Melbourne, or enough in Sydney, and I'm looking for X. So, you know, they'll wait for the next, next opportunity. So most of ours are small. We only do small deals. We're not competing with the big guys, uh, the Qualitases and those that, you know, really, really good. And they've got a far bigger balance sheet and uh, reach than we have. So we're doing basically sub $10 million deals. Um, and we're very happy to do that. We've probably got a $100 million book now that we built in this last 12 months. And we're just ticking that over and we don't have to rush it.
And what do you look for uh, from a developer? I mean, you obviously look for a, a good relationship, you look for a track record, what else? Uh, both those things. I think, you know, have you done it before? Some people haven't. You take a lot of interest in how that's been done. If, if we're doing construction, which we do do, um, you know, QS and following the, the payment system is, is, is vital to get that right. We've got really good people doing that. If it's, um, you know, land acquired for development and we're just doing that component of it, we will obviously look for the track record. It doesn't mean to say it, it has to be You've got to have a long one, but we've got to be satisfied you know what you're doing. And we will spend time working on that. Uh, and the relationship with the, the borrower is, is vital. We more and more are looking to, you know, building those relationships so that they will come back to us uh, and we'll be confident that they know what they're doing and we'll be um, bold enough to say we don't think that's a good deal or we're not going to do it, but why would you? Those sorts of things. Um, so pretty interactive with that. And that's also because We've got to make sure our, our investors, you know, know that we're working very uh, closely with the uh, with, with the, the developer that we've, we're asking them to back. Now you've been very generous with your time, so just two or three quick questions to finish. Um, outside of, of property and your corporate interests, how do you keep yourself busy from a philanthropic perspective? Yeah, I've got a few areas that I'm involved in uh, at the moment, and I like to have sort of three things. Uh, I guess I, I don't put the swans into that category because that's a, that's a passion, um, and and uh, and I hope a good one this year. Um, we don't like finishing 16th, so um, I'm involved with Backtrack. Uh, Backtrack is a group based up in Armadale, run by a fellow called Bernie Shakeshaft and his team of people. Um, I got involved with them about five years ago, and we uh, we we split them out of a group that they were with up there that had backed them in the early days and we got them DGR status and we've, uh, Bernie's just does a wonderful job with people, uh, youth at risk. Anyone can look up Backtrack and I won't, I won't tell the story because you can get it on, on, the, on the internet, but it's a good story. And uh, the Garvin Institute uh, Medical Research, which um, I've just rejoined their uh, foundation, which is the fundraising side. I was on the other board for 12 plus years, a number of times years ago and um, I'm, uh, I've just rejoined their board and you know they do amazing things and in this era of COVID uh, to have one of the leading immunologists uh, as our head is uh, Chris Goodnow is, is, is terrific um, and uh, you know the Garvin does amazing things as most good medical institutes do but you know that that's a worthy cause and my third one's environment with the Nature Conservancy uh, which we do work around Australia in reef restoration um, in, in the southern states. Uh, doing a lot in uh, Port Phillip Bay actually, and Corio Bay, just uh, putting the reef back so people in Victoria can go fishing again. Uh, in Western Australia, South Australia, just starting to do some up here. And we've uh, a water fund in the Murray-Darling, which is a, a for-profit arrangement. And we do work in the Northern Territory and uh, Kimberley and with the indigenous groups there with uh, uh, CO2, carbon, and burning and things like that. So they're my three three things that I've got just enough time to do and find it really interesting. That's a nice diversion from commerce. And my final question is, as I said, you've been on the Sydney Swans Football Club board for some 13 years now. What's it like being a board member of an AFL club and, and what are the big issues this year for an AFL club, be it the Swans or, or anybody else? It's a privilege uh, to be there, number one. Um, the board... Um, 
led by Andrew Pritterman and uh, before him Dick Collis has been well led, uh, both at the board level and at the executive level, now Tom Harley taking over from Andrew Ireland. So, you know, we're, we're very blessed with the people we have and we, to, you know, we've been through a terrifically difficult year. We had to get rid of about 30% of our staff um, and, and there's nice ways to say it, uh, but I don't think there's any nice way to say that you've got to let people go, it's, it's, it's horrible. But we were forced into that position, as were all clubs. Um, and, um, you know, I think all clubs did a fabulous job uh, during 2020. If you think about the hubs that were created, the dislocation with families, people, you know, players young and old, and coaches young and old had to you know, get it, go away for weeks at a time. It was very uncertain, very challenging for some people and some clubs. Uh, all our people rallied together, so I'm really pleased with the way that worked and you know, they really, really did pull together. And the energy in the place, I've never seen it as, as high as it is at the moment in terms of we're going to get this and we're going to work through this and we're going to come out the other side. So the whole of the AFL is under pressure. Um, all sporting groups are, you know, you just the, the tennis, God knows how much they're going to lose on that. Rugby's the same, et cetera, et cetera. So AFL with, um, you know, is, is, uh, uh, was in a lot better shape than most other codes, um, although we're burning through a lot of money and we were lucky enough to inherit uh, Marvel Stadium, which gave us a great asset to, to use in this, in this time. Uh, to be able to use as collateral for, for money that they might need. And um, I won't speak for other clubs because um, uh, that, that would be wrong. There's some, re some really well-run clubs that I'm, I think are fantastic and there's, like every organisation, you have your winners and your losers and I'd like to think that the Swans are one of the winners. Notwithstanding that it's a really tough, tough gig. Um, you know, where our turnover went from about $55 million to about $32 million you know, in those uncertain times. And, and a club like ours at 55 million turnover was breaking even. We don't make a lot of money each year. There are a couple of power clubs around Australia that do, um, but most of us live on that sort of knife's edge. Um, but we weren't in debt until this year. We're carrying a little bit of debt, which the AFL are funding, uh, and we would hope to be out of that you know, fingers crossed and everything crossed by uh, the end of 21, assuming we'll get um, a reasonable go at, you know, 50% crowds and we'll get a season. Uh, that is still way up in the air at the moment. Um, no one knows, you know, it's not a matter of saying, I know something is that someone else doesn't, we just don't know. If we look at the way states have reacted to shutdowns and lockdowns, um, you look at the way Western Australia's behaved, etc. Then you know it, anything could happen. So um, all clubs, we are, we are very aware aware of that. We're just we're planning to. We we're not even wildly optimistic. We're just planning to get through. You know, with sort of 50% of what we hope to do in terms of crowds and those sorts of things. If we do that, we'll be in good shape. If we don't. We've got other contingency plans. We'll be okay, but we'll still be in debt at the end of 21. That's not a position we like to be. Greg Paramore, AO, industry legend. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. For me too. Thank you.